Welcome to the first episode of the Stories We Tell podcast. I'm your host, Tony Burge. Thank you for joining. As the first episode, it's hard to tell exactly where this experiment will end up, um, but for now, we will be focusing on what I consider, what we consider to be great works of fiction and nonfiction, cracking them open and pulling out what meaning, symbols, and common themes that we can. I consider these great works, and this, they have been widely accepted to be great works, not just me deciding that these are good. These are very well-known books, very well-known works of fiction and nonfiction that have survived decades and centuries of critique. The reason for this, and I believe that the reason these stories still resonate and are discussed today, that were written so long ago, is that they speak to something deeper than just our desire for a good story. There are infinite amount of books out there, and there are libraries full of wonderful stories that most of us, you know, we will not read most of them. There are too many of them. But there are so few that actually stick. There are very few that stick in the public consciousness with the passing of time, especially the further along you go, the fewer and fewer books remain. So a big part of this is understanding why these are still important, what we can gather from them to enhance our own experience, and what else we can find in them that also translates to other aspects of our life. And why I chose to start this podcast is simply for the fact that I enjoy it. I listen to podcasts most of the time instead of music, and this is the podcast that for a long time I've wanted to hear, this type of podcast, something that talks about certain books, explains them, goes into detail about the symbol and all that type of interesting stuff and so since I'm no longer in any kind of structured study I found myself missing the structure of read this book and tell me what you think about it so I also love sharing and teaching and I figured why not do this free activity that can be shared freely and just see how many people we can get reading and discussing the same books you know topics and different topics more deeply than we are otherwise able to in this fast-paced quickly stimulating information overload world that we currently occupy so that's enough for the intro i hope you all enjoy this and are able to continue continue following along and joining the discussion uh, i don't edit it's going to be just one long raw recording so there may be some mistakes i may stutter i may pronounce things wrong i will try not to say um too much to fill in blank silence but this is it all right i hope you all enjoy and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thou countenance, countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother 
his blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, in the east of Eden. When a child first catches adults out, when it first walks into his grave little head that adults do not have divine intelligence, that their judgments are not always wise, their thinking true, their sentences just, his world falls into panic and desolation. The gods are fallen and all safety gone. And there is one sure thing about the fall of gods. They do not fall a little. They crash and shatter or sink deeply into green muck. It is a tedious job to build them up again. They never quite shine. And the child's world is never quite whole again. It is an aching kind of growing. Adam found his father out. It wasn't that his father had changed, but that some new quality came to Adam. He had always hated the discipline, as every normal animal does, but it was just and true and inevitable as the measles. Not to be denied or cursed, only to be hated. And then, it was very fast, almost a click in the brain, Adam knew that, for him at least, his father's methods had no reference to anything in the world but his father. The techniques and training were not designed for the boys at all, but only to make Cyrus a great man. That same click in the brain told Adam that his father was not a great man, that he was indeed a very strong-willed and concentrated little man wearing a huge busby. Who knows what causes this? A look in the eye, a lie found out, a moment of hesitation, then God comes crashing down in a child's brain. The first quote was obviously from the book of Genesis. Um, it's also quoted in this book as well as the second quote I read from East of Eden by John Steinbeck. East of Eden is one of those stories that has it all. It has history, drama, comedy, life, and death. My personal test for whether or not a work of fiction is great is that by the time I finish it, I feel like I've lived an entire life. If you haven't read East of Eden, you've probably seen the movie starring James Dean, which does, and it does an okay job at discussing the story between the brothers uh, Aaron and Caleb, or Cal, as we'll call them for the rest of this podcast. But um, if you and their father, but the book actually starts with the grandparents of the brothers, as well as the ancestry and the thorough backstory of the estranged mother. The book is more of a history of families, which climaxes at the conflict between Aaron and Cal, but much of it is spent building to this moment. Now, I always hate when people say, you know, the book's better than the movie. 
because it's just a different medium. A lot of the times the movie is just as good, if not better, than the book. But in this instance, because in the movie, it starts basically on the last 50 pages of this 700-page book. When you read it, you spend that 650 pages building to this moment, connecting with the family, their story, the different characters, the struggles, the you know the down moments, the high moments, and so when you reach that moment of conflict, it means much more than I experienced when I watched the movie. And I actually watched the movie first, uh, probably uh, a long, 10, 15, 10, 11 years ago. But um, so yeah, there are obvious references to the story of Cain and Abel in this book as well as the fall of man story. Aaron and Cal, their dad had a brother um, who was named Charles. One of the moments in this is when Charles gives their dad Cyrus this fancy, expensive knife as a gift, while Adam gives him a dog that he got for free. I believe he got it from a pound or a family friend. Something It cost him nothing, but Cyrus loved that dog. And he didn't really care for the knife. Uh, Charles spent a lot of money on the knife. Adam chose the dog, but it had much more meaning than just the knife that could be purchased. And Cyrus loves and trains and attaches to the dog. And so Charles, in such blind anger, brutally beats Adam and has the intentions to kill him. But luckily, Adam is able to hide because Charles beats him up, goes to find a weapon, comes back with a weapon. It's nighttime. Charles is a Adam is able to hide in a creek. So Charles looks for him for a little bit, gets mad that he can't find him, and gives up, goes to a brothel, and basically forgets that he tried to kill him in the first place because when they see each other again, it's like, oh, hey, bro, what's up? Very strange. Very quick to anger. And that's sort of the tone of their entire relationship, even when they're adults, and the violence is over, there's still that underlying angst. Charles Charles also has a mark on his forehead from an accident when he was trying to remove a boulder in the farm, which calls to the mark of Cain that he received on his forehead. Fast forward to Cal and Aaron. Aaron was the golden child. Cal was the rebel, the one who always felt out of place, unloved, insecure in a deeper sense than just aesthetic insecurity but an unsettled lostness for lack of a better word his mother their mother Cal and Aaron were twins became pregnant with them on their wedding night but she seduces Charles on their wedding night so you really don't know who the father is and this adds to that feeling of insecurity that where did I come from insecurity that runs so deep in this story and that translates into what all of us experience at some point as sentient beings that no other animal has to worry about this I don't know where I came from why am I here this is what cow possesses this is what you're supposed to feel when you read about and see the different things that cow does There's also the scene towards the end 
which is basically the climax of the story, where Cal presents a gift of money to his father, who had just lost much of the family wealth in this poor investment. But the father just utterly rejects the gift and exclaims, you know, why, basically, why can't you be more like your brother? There's a lot of complicated undertones because Adam became rich initially because of an inheritance his father left. And then towards the end of the book, there's this pretty, pretty much a certainty that Cyrus, the dad, the grandpa to Cal, stole the money. And that's what Adam inherited. So there's this feeling of, I don't deserve this anyway. Then he loses it. Then Cal presents him this gift. And he got the money from investing in beans, which were sold at a high premium to Britain because they were in the middle of a war and they needed it really bad. So Adam saw that as kind of an immoral way of receiving the money at all. So he goes through this long speech. You know, Why can't you be more like your brother? He's working hard to become a priest. He's at a seminary. And being a priest is an obvious reference to being a shepherd which is what Abel was, and Cain worked the field. Cal made the money by uh, working in the field. So there's all these small but very obvious connections to the Cain and Abel story throughout. And so, yeah, why can't you be more like your brother and you only have this material wealth to present to me that really doesn't mean anything to me. Same as Charles' knife for Cyrus was rejected. It was just this material thing that could be bought. It wasn't meaningful to the father, to the lower G, lowercase g God of this story. And what's interesting and what's explained in this story, God was not cursing Cain for just because he preferred his brother's gift, his brother's sacrifice. He simply had a preference for the sheep over the crops. Same with Charles and Adam. Same with Cal and Aaron. They, it wasn't a rejection. It was just a preference. This speaks to the very obvious point that men absolutely hate rejection. And... The men that are rejected their entire lives, feel rejected, are the ones you see in the news doing horrible things, and in this story are the ones doing horrible things. Men that feel rejected. Cal, totally upset that his gift was rejected. He takes his brother to see their mother, who is still alive at this point, but she works in a brothel. Aaron is so overwhelmed because he thinks thought the mother was dead, but he sees this horrible woman, this epitome of evil, and is so distraught that he enlists in the army and dies in battle. Again, the Abel being killed by Cain due to the jealousy caused by their sacrifice being rejected. The powerful thing about that excerpt read earlier, that description of the fall of gods, you know, we could spend 10 hours discussing just those paragraphs. They, the gods don't fall a little. They crash. They leave holes. They break you. When, you know, 
when you realize your parents are just as unsure as you are, just as metaphysically and existentially insecure as you are, that's an extremely important moment in the transition between childhood and adulthood. And if it's not dealt with, it can have horrific effects on your own life. If it is not dealt with in a positive way, it's not dealt with understanding and constructive behavior, it can leave a hole, it can crash your life. And then you take that to the macro level, the breakdown of collective myth, of shared religious experience and traditions, that God's crash leaves a mark and it deeply affects everybody. If a society does not recognize and cope with that, there is a hole left behind. There is a dis-ease. What Cal possessed, what Charles possessed, that feeling of lostness, that feeling of where did I come from, where am I going? And the only way they could cope with it was with violence, with jealousy, with bitterness, resentment. Because they, they did not take that information and do something positive with it. They could only respond in this primal, animalistic, negative way. They took the rejection of their gift as a rejection of their person, as a rejection of themselves. And we all do it. If someone doesn't like something that you worked to do, even if you didn't work necessarily very hard for it, right? especially if you worked very hard on it. But even if you really didn't work that hard on it and you thought they should like it and they don't, it hurts. Everybody feels it. Some cope with it better. Some feel it and then do something constructive with it. Some react a lot more dramatically in the negative way. But we all do it. And, you know, someone listens to this podcast and they say, man, I hated it. I hate the way your voice sounds. I hate the books you choose, all that stuff. I mean, I, I wouldn't respond outwardly, but I, I would feel it. And you know, Steinbeck, the writer, was an author. He, he knew more than anyone. Authors notoriously deal with rejection. Probably the same for actors and any type of entertainment. They know how intimately we connect with our own work, our own gifts, our own sacrifice. And enough rejection can just drive a man, a woman, to madness. This book is very dense, and to try to cover all of it would make this very diluted and hard to follow because you just might as well read it yourself and take the time to absorb all of it. It could probably be broken into, this book is actually broken into parts. It could probably be broken into parts, but I, I just didn't want to do that. I think there are some themes in this book that go throughout that we can pinpoint, which is what I've tried to do. I mean, you have Adam's mother who actually drowned herself after finding out that his father had transmitted this sexual disease to her that he got from a prostitute. Then he marries another woman, has a baby, and that's who Charles is, who's the golden boy. And then Adam is sort of reluctantly loved. He's this remnant of this embarrassed past that Cyrus wants to forget but can't because Adam is the is the symbol of the mistakes he made. So there's this very intense and complicated relationship between them. 
You have the story of Kathy, the mother of Aaron and Cal, who is explained as the epitome of evil since birth. Nothing happened to her that caused this evil. No traumatic event. She was just born with it. Nothing in childhood caused her to be the way she is. She was just evil. She seduces to punish. She actually kills her parents, burns their house down, escapes, becomes a prostitute, eventually ends up on Adam and Charles' doorstep and enters the story there. She is used as the symbol of evil, the passing of evil down through generations, through the bloodline. She's the cursed one of the story, the offspring of Cain. Adam becomes obsessively in love with her. Charles sees through the facade, but also is seduced by her. And the drawl of the forbidden fruit was just more than they could bear. There's a great discussion between Adam, Samuel, who is a neighbor, that lives on a neighboring farm, and Lee, who is a family friend, while the twins are sleeping and they're trying to figure out you know, what they should name them. And then the idea of Cain and Abel comes up. And uh, there's another conversation later on in the story, supposed to be a decade later, where the three of them are discussing this again. And apparently Lee was just totally obsessed with the story after their discussion. He went on this adventure to study it, to figure out what this story is about, becomes obsessed with it. And he explains the Hebrew word temshul, which means thou mayest, which is found whenever God says, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Lee is arguing that that word temshul is where it says thou shalt. So instead of a command, it's actually thou mayest. Which means, you know, God's promising Cain that if he does well, he could conquer or overcome sin. And this becomes the running theme throughout the rest of the story. And the last word spoken by Adam who you know, hears that Aaron has been killed in battle, overcome, has a stroke. Cal is overwhelmed with guilt. His brother's dead, his dad is dying, and he knows that it's Cal's fault that he joined the army and was killed in battle. And Lee, who is, this, who is the family friend who serves as the voice of reason, is begging with Adam. It's this dramatic moment right at the end of the book where he's begging with him to forgive Cal. Stop this cycle. He's the sole heir to the continue the lineage. So if you don't forgive him and this curse is continued, it'll pass on to his children and it'll probably keep going unless you break it now. Stop this cycle of hatred, of rejection, of death. Forgive him. And so Adam musters up the courage. He tries to talk. He can't. He's starting to go away. comes back. And he finally whispers the word Timshul, which they discussed earlier, which is to mean forgiveness of Cal. And that he now he has the freedom to decide to break this cycle, as Cain had that freedom to do well, to break this cycle of rejection. So this, this story deals heavily with the existence of, and the cycle of evil through family relationships as well as the belief that we have free will and that cycles can indeed be broken it can end we do have free will to an extent we do not control who we are born to our parents 
where we are born into, the country we are born in. So being born in America as opposed to being born in Sudan, it's very obvious which one you would choose, but you unfortunately do not have that choice. You are just lucky that you are here, if you are here. We don't choose how we are raised and with what opportunities and what opportunities are presented to us. So you see, this is a huge gap in that free will belief. We do have free will up to the point that we have the freedom to will it. But up to most of us, the age of 17, 18, life is chosen mostly for us. From conception to adulthood. We don't have much choice until that point, which leaves a huge gap that we are not choosing. Cal did not choose to be born. He didn't choose to be the lesser of the two brothers in terms of intelligence, of likability and strength. He used what he thought was important, what he had, the material, the crop, as Cain did, but was rejected. The freedom came in the end, and that he can choose what to do with that rejection, and that it doesn't have to be destructive. It doesn't have the rejection does not have to be negative. It can be constructive. He can offer life his own sheep. It doesn't have to be the same as the same one his brother offered, but he can change what he believes to be important, the material, the surface and give his own version of an acceptable sacrifice in life. And that's what we're left with in this story east of Eden, and in life in general. Not all of our sacrifices look the same. Not all of us have the same abilities or strengths. But we can offer something meaningful. We can offer a worthy sacrifice. But it requires a shift in what we think is important. Not envying another's flock, to continue the long drawn out metaphor, but taking care and taking care of and nurturing our own. That's what we are left with with the East of Eden. Um, one of my favorite top 10 books of all time. Thank you again for joining. I apologize if there's some audio issues, if I've pronounced things wrong, stuttered a little bit. This is the first one. They can only get better, but there's only one way to get better, and that's to keep pumping these out. So I appreciate it if you listen all the way to the end. I would love some feedback. I'd like to know what everyone thinks, even what you think about the story. What interpretations do you have? What, what parts of the story stood out to you? Because that's one thing that's interesting to me is that depending on your life experience, different things will appear important to you. So what, I, what stuck out to me might be very different than what sticks out to you. So share that. Let me know what you think. Read this book. Um, next week or probably the week after, we'll have another book ready to go over, talk about, discuss. So I look forward to continuing these. Appreciate you all for joining. This has been the Stories We Tell podcast. Thanks.